above all others, wonderful to hear, bringing hope and cheer. It's the lovely name of Jesus, evermore the same. What a lovely name. What a lovely name, this name of Jesus. Reaching higher far, reaching higher far than the brightest star. Songs they sing in heaven. Let the world proclaim. Let the world proclaim what a lovely name. Through his name there's wondrous power. Power to redeem, making sinners clean. By his power. Blinded eyes cause the dead to rise. He'll return in clouds of glory, saints of every race shall behold his face. With him enter heaven city to proclaim what a lovely name what a lovely name this name of Jesus reaching higher far reaching higher far than the brightest star sweeter than the songs they sing in heaven let the world proclaim let the world proclaim what a lovely name. Let the world proclaim what a lovely name. A lovely name. Well, amen. What a lovely name. Amen. Well, that's good. Oh, Brother Mark's going to come, and again, uh, he doesn't need introduced. We've uh, heard from him about four weeks, five weeks ago, and for four weeks we were given a, just a crash course on creation versus evolution, and we're looking forward to what he has in store for us and what God has in store for us at the same time. Brother Mark, you come. God bless you, brother. If you're not here, there we go. If you're not here for the, the month of February, every Wednesday night I was able to go over a different topic in science and uh, debate creation versus evolution. And uh, tonight, what we're... Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Tonight, what, uh, what I'm going to bring before you is something that I learned in school and something that I went to school for, dating and geology. 
and dating the, uh, the crust of the earth, dating how old the earth is uh, according to how geologists date it today. And we're going to learn how they date it. We're going to look at the evolutionary side first, and we're, we're going to look at the creationist theory second, and then I'm going to, I'm going to show the flaws um, with, with both theories. But uh, if, if you remember, my main goal for this class was that, number one, everybody learns something. Number two, we learn it for the right reason. And number three, we, we learn it for the right person. And so hopefully what we learn tonight will be used for the glory and the honor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and not to make us look better, not, not to make us look smarter, but to make him look more glorious, more amazing, and more wonderful. All right? So if we, before we get started, let's go ahead and pray and ask for his blessing on the service tonight. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous blessing it is to be in your house tonight, Father. Uh, what a tremendous blessing it is to be living on this earth, uh, to be part of your creation. God, we, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Uh, God, for creating the largest mountain range on this earth and then creating us and dying for us, Father. We thank you so much for that. God, may you help us to be a blessing to you tonight. Bring a smile to your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so tonight it's going to be... Um, I want to put on your nerd glasses and get out your scientific calculators. <laughs> it's going to be, there's going to be quite a bit of science here, okay? And I listened to myself last time, and I realized I say okay a lot. <laughs> I say it a lot, and I'm like, man, that's frustrating. So I'm working on it. I'm working on it. All right? <laughs> so we'll start off here. Let's see here. It's not working here. There we go. First off, before we start into any of the actual theories, we need to start on some basics. So we need to learn and remember, if we go back to fifth grade or sixth grade or seventh grade science, what are the three different types of rocks that are on the crust of the earth? There are three major types of rocks. The first type is sedimentary. And sedimentary rocks form from different types of sediments on the earth's surface. So for example, we have sandstone. That forms from sand, right? Shale, that forms from mud or dirt. That's lithified or hardened mud or dirt. Limestone is essentially sandstone that was, uh, that was touching or underneath salt water. It's, it's carbonaceous. It's salty. And then, and then you have a conglomerate, which uh, down here in the bottom, wrong one, down here in the bottom left, that's, that's a, a conglomerate. We have pebbles and you have other different sized rocks inside of a bigger rock. Okay? Those are just examples of different sedimentary types of rocks. Sedimentary rocks make up 90% of the Earth's crust. 90% of the crust is made up of these type of rocks. It's a very important type of rock uh, in, our, in our crust. Second uh, rock we have here is igneous. Igneous rocks are rocks that form when magma cools either above or below the surface of the Earth. So they form from volcanoes. Uh, you have different examples of these as well. Most popular is granite. We all know what, what a granite is. We all know obsidian. Obsidian is like a sharp, dark, metallic glass. It's, it's volcanic glass. Uh, you have pumice. Pumice is very light. It's, it's, it looks like a, a sponge that turned into a rock. It's so light it can float in water. And then you have basalt. These are just examples of igneous rocks. And then we have minerals. So any mineral you can think of, whether it's a sapphire or a ruby or, or tourmaline, these are all minerals. They are all igneous rocks, and they all come out of magma or or volcanoes. Our third type of rock, finally, is metamorphic rocks. And metamorphic rocks are rocks that form from sedimentary or igneous rocks. 
Uh, they change chemically and physically due to changes in pressure and or temperature. So at one point in time, they were either a sedimentary rock or, or an igneous rock, and they were then buried and, and introduced to higher temperature, higher pressure, and they became a different type of rock. So marble is an example. It used to be granite, and granite was then buried. It was changed according to pressure and temperature, and it became marble. Slate used to be shale. Uh, quartzite used to be sandstone, and nice um, used to be mean. No, just kidding. <laughs> it, uh, I'm not sure what nice was, but they're different types of rocks. <laughs> so the, those are the main three types of rocks. So now we're going to hop into the evolutionary theory and, and explore this, this here. So it all started back around, around 1669 when a man by the name of Nicholas Steno, he produced a theory, and it's now known as the law of superposition. And this law states that rock layers will be found with the oldest layer on the bottom and the youngest layer on top. Now this is, you know, pretty, that's common sense, right? If, if, the, if the rock is going to form first, the oldest is going to be on the bottom and another one forms on top and another, another one forms on top. He also stated that they form in the horizontal position and any change to this position is changed after the formation of the layers. So in other words, rocks are not going to form on top of each other like this. They're going to form on top of each other like this. And if we see them today as this, that happened after they were deposited. Okay, So that it would have been... I use that word again. They, there was an earthquake or there was some sort of compression that allowed it to change its, its shape and its form. If you could, the, uh, the next slide there. So we see this in examples. If you, look to, uh, if you look to the Grand Canyon, this thing doesn't seem to be working tonight. It's not working. That might work. Okay. If we look at the... Uh, that's why I study rocks. If you look at the Grand Canyon, this here is a stratigraphic column of what the Grand Canyon looks like. At the bottom here, we have the Colorado River. We have a schist down here, a granite. Then we have a sandstone, a shale, a limestone, a limestone. The supai group is a mixture of sandstones and siltstones, another shale, another sandstone, and then these are more sandstones and siltstones up top. And so this is, this is a, a cross-cut of what the Grand Canyon would look like. So if we look at the law of superposition according to this, the bottom layers came first. That makes sense. Uh, these are the oldest rocks down here. The Uncar group is a granite as well. So according to the geologic timeline, these are pre-Cambrian. That's an age they give it. And, and these are the oldest rocks. That makes sense. Now, disconformities. You'll see these disconformities here. A disconformity shows time lost between the deposition of the layers. So let's take example of these two limestones. This is called the Moab limestone, and this is called the Redwall limestone. And you can see there's a very squiggly line in between. So if you were to go up actually in person to the surface of that rock and go up to the wall, it would be wavy like that between the rock layers. Now, that happened for a reason. There's a very clear-cut line between the Moab limestone and the Redwall limestone. One is purple, one is red. There's a very clear cut, but it's extremely wavy like that. that that's because before the Redwall limestone was deposited, there was another rock that was deposited there first, and it eroded away. That's why this is an erosional surface. Otherwise, it'd be flat. Like, see how these here are flat? There's, the, there's no erosional surface there. So we can see that over time. In other words, before the Redwall limestone was there, 
there was another rock that was deposited there, and now it's gone. We're missing geologic time. We're missing it. We don't know where it went. It just disappeared. Okay, it, it eroded away, and now it's gone. So we call these disconformities because we find these all around the world, all around the world. For whatever reason, we're missing rock that should be there. If, if the geologic timeline is correct, we're missing rocks that should be there. Nonconformities show a boundary between different types of rock. So down here, it's a, it's a boundary between a sandstone and a granite, or a, a metamorphic rock and a granite. That's, that's what a nonconformity is. So this is the law, law of superposition. Now, in order to figure out how old these rocks are, this is where it really gets scientific, all right? So really bear with me here. It's going to get either really boring or either really interesting. So there are two different types of dating methods. We have absolute dating and we have relative dating. Absolute dating is when we can determine exactly how old a rock is and in which environment it was formed. Sandstones, usually they form on a beachfront or on a riverbed, right? When you look down a riverbed, you see either sand or mud. When you look on a beach, you see sand. So therefore, that's what the, the environment it was formed in. But we use this absolute dating two separate different ways. The first way is radiometric dating. And radiometric dating can only be used on igneous rocks. It can only be used on igneous rocks because we, we look at the crystals. Remember I said in, in igneous rocks, as soon as that magma cools, those crystals, they crystallize. Those minerals, they crystallize. So radiometric dating here can only be used on igneous rocks. And we're, we're going to dig more deep into this. This is going to get kind of deep here. But in order to understand how they date these rocks, we need to understand how they date these rocks. Makes sense, doesn't it? So radiometric dating. When in an igneous rock, let's not look at this for a second. When, when we look at igneous rocks, as soon as they come out of the volcano, we've all seen pictures of volcanoes, the magma flows down the mountainside. And at some point in time, it hardens. It turns into stone. And you can go and you can walk on it. We see this out in Hawaii. It happens all the time. When that magma cools and when it hardens, it has different minerals in it. Every single type of mineral you, you can think of. They have different chemical compositions. But at some point, when that starts to cool, those minerals will crystallize in a matter of milliseconds. So if you ever see a perfect crystal gem, whether it's a sapphire or a ruby, that thing formed just like that in milliseconds. As soon as it cooled, it turned into a, a crystal. The problem is, in some of these rocks, we have radioactive minerals. So we all have heard of uranium. right? That's, that is a radioactive mineral. Some of these other ones that are more, more popular are thor thorium, rubidium-87, potassium-40. Potassium is used a lot. These are different minerals that are radioactive. And as soon as those rocks, as soon as those minerals crystallize, they start to decay. And, and, and all that, that radioactivity starts to leave the rock. Has, has, am, I, am I making sense here? Yes. Does that make sense? So these, these here are the radioactive elements that are found in different types of rocks, that are found in different igneous rocks. And we find these. Now, we can measure how fast it takes for those minerals to decay out of the rock completely until there's no more radioactivity in that rock. So if we look at these, at these minerals here, let's take potassium-40, for example. Potassium-40 is one of, one of the most abundant uh, 
radioactive minerals found in, in igneous rocks today. So if we take potassium-40 and we watch it crystallize as it comes out of the volcano, we watch it crystallize, we set our watch. We know that in 1.25 billion years, half of that potassium will be argon. It'll, it'll decay into argon because it's, it's a certain decay rate. It happens at the same time every single time. So we, we measure this in what's called half-lives. And a half-life is, is, is up here. A half-life says how long it takes for half of the nuclides or half of this element here, how long it takes for half of it to decay into this element here. So if we go back to this, this graph here, down at the bottom we have half-lives. So in one half-life, if we take potassium, in 1.25 billion years, 50% of that potassium will now be argon. It's going to be 50-50, just like that. If we measure another 1.25 billion years, the rest of that half, half of potassium is now going to go down to a quarter, and it's going to be 75% argon, 25% uh, uh, potassium. It's going to be you know, quarters. And then if you go another 1.25 billion years, it's going to be one-eighth potassium and seven-eighths argon. Does that make sense? That is how half-lives work. And that is how we measure how old these rocks are. It's, it's simple math. Now, it's not simple, but it's math. It's very complex calculus. But anyways, we look at this, and this is how we determine how old these rocks are. If we look at, down at the bottom, if we look at the Uncar group here, this is a granite. So we can, we can date this granite, and I'll show you here. We can date this granite. Uh, on the bottom, there are zircon crystals in the Vishnu formation. That's that granite on the bottom. And there's uranium that decays into lead. So we can measure the decay rate. And therefore, we know that as soon as that rock crystallized, that rock formed about 1.84 billion years ago. Plus or minus one million years. <laughs> okay. 1.84 billion years ago. That's just simple mathematics. Simple mathematics. So... If we look at carbon-14, that's another very popular one that most people know about. You can only use carbon-14 dating on, on fossils that were once living. So whether that's plant life or humans or animals, you can only use carbon-14 dating on those. It will not work on anything else because it measures how fast the carbon decays. Remember I said about half-lives. So potassium has a half-life of 1.25 billion years. Carbon-14 dating only has a half-life of 5,670 years. So it's, it's going to take a lot faster for the carbon to decay rather than potassium. So at the most, if, if you watch something die, and as soon as it dies, the carbon starts to decay out of that body or out of that shell or out of that whatever it was that died. As soon as it dies, the carbon is going to start decaying. And if you use mathematics, you only have about 35,000 to 55,000 years, depending on the environment it's in, until all the carbon has gone out of that fossil. So anything older than 50,000 years old, you really can't use carbon-14 dating on. You really can't, because it's, that's, by that time, all the carbon's out of it, and you can't measure it anymore. So carbon-14 dating can only be used on fossils or things that were once living. So we also use relative dating. You have absolute dating and you have relative dating. Relative dating is much more simpler, and that is just placing the rocks in their correct historical order. So if we have a limestone or a, uh, down here is a granite, 
and we know that that is about 1.84 billion years old. And up here we have a limestone that has fossils in it. So we can use carbon-14 dating to date the fossils. We know that these two layers in between are older than the limestone and yet younger than the granite. That's relative dating. It's very simple. But sometimes we don't have layers that we can date that are nearby. Sometimes we just have straight sandstone and there's no fossils in there. So how do you date that, that sandstone? It becomes very difficult. It becomes very difficult. But these are the two main dating methods that we use. And there are many others, but they'll take a very long time to discuss. Are, are we still on track here? Everybody still fo am I making sense? All right. Just making sure. So for the Grand Canyon, we use absolute dating for the bottom layers, and we use carbon-14 dating layers with fossils. So that this limestone here, the Redwall limestone, we dated, and that's about 340 million years old. Now, I'm not going to... That's with carbon-14 dating, so good luck. 340 million years old. And then we use relative dating for the layers in between. So that is how you date every single layer throughout the Earth. And, and scientists have been doing this for so long, for 200 years now, that they have a rock layer in every area of the world. And they now can, if you find a new rock, oh, we'll just place it right here because it makes sense. And that's, that's how they do it. They've been doing it for so long, they know just by every single rock in the entire world where it lies, you know, when it was created, how old it is, different things like that. And so at, once, you, once you do it for so long, you, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing. So that's, that's the evolutionary theory. Um, before I go into the, the creationist theory, though, I want to say this. Depositional layers. So let's say we have large beds of sandstone, limestone, shale, and other co common sedimentary rocks. They take years to be deposited. If we look at, look at the Mississippi River Delta down, down in Louisiana, when it em empties out into the Gulf of Mexico, right, studies show that the Mississippi River Delta has taken 7,000 years to grow 3.7 million acres out into the, the Gulf of Mexico. So about 7,000 years ago, that whole peninsula of Louisiana was not there. It, it, it just wasn't there because there was not as much deposition. But now, 7,000 years later, we have much more deposition, deposition, and it's grown out into the Gulf of Mexico, about 3.7 million acres. However, it has not really grown up at all, right? It, I mean, we always see flooding, flooding in Louisiana, but Im imagine how much longer it would take for that much to be deposited 10 feet thick even. And we have rock layers throughout the world that are hundreds of feet thick. So imagine it would take hundreds upon thousands of years in order for something that thick to be deposited. So it makes sense. If the Earth is, is 4.2 billion years old, we would need all that time to make up the story of depositing all the rocks. It just, everything fits in place. It all fits in place. Is that, am I, I'm getting a lot of weird looks here. Are we good? Okay. If you have any questions, hold them till the end. I'll try to answer them then. So that, that's, that's how, whenever you find layers throughout the world, throughout the United States, throughout anywhere else, when you find a limestone, a shale, anything like that, we can place it right in, in, the rock, in, in the rock record. We know where it's at. So now we're going to look at the theory of creation. And we're going to look at the Bible here. If you remember my uh, first week here, as, as scientists and as Christians, we always go to the Word of God first. That's the first place we go to. We don't, we don't compare this to science. We compare science to this. And science always fits into the Word of God first. The Word of God is always true. And let every man be a liar. So Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1, verse number 10, the Bible says this, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, 
and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall become changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Let's turn to Job chapter 28. Job chapter 28. The Bible has a lot to say about foundations. It's a lot to say about foundations. And what are, what are the foundations of the earth? They're rocks. In order to build upon a foundation, it has to be a rock. Job chapter 28. The Bible says this in verse number 1. Surely there is a vein for the silver and a place for gold where they find it. Not find it, but find it. They refine it. Iron is taken out of the earth and brass is molten out of the stone. Now keep in mind, this is the earliest written book in your Bible. This was several thousand years before Jesus Christ, or maybe not several thousand, but it was quite a ways before Jesus Christ. And here they are, they already know how to f- refine metal. That's, that's pretty amazing, pretty amazing. He setteth an end to darkness and ser- searcheth out all perfection, the stones of darkness and the shadow of death. The flood breaketh out from the inhabitant, even the waters forgotten of the foot. They are dried up, they are gone away from men. As for the earth, out of it cometh bread, and under it is turned up as it were fire. Hmm, magma. The stones of it are the place of sapphires, and it hath dust of gold. There is a path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. The lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed by it. He putteth forth his hand upon the rock, he overturneth the mountains by the roots, he cutteth out rivers among the rocks, and his eye seeth every precious thing. He bindeth the floods from overflowing, and the thing that is hid bringeth he forth to light. Did you know under volcanoes there are tunnels that are formed out by magma, and now they're cleaned out, and you can go out and you can walk in these tunnels that were formed out by magma? That's pretty interesting. You know, this is, this is thousands of years before any geologist came on the scene. And it's telling you right where the sapphires are. It's telling you right where, the, where all the diamonds are. It's telling you right where everything is. That's fascinating. Let's turn to Job chapter 38. Job 38 and verse number 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy lands like a, loins like a man, for I will demand of thee and answer thou me. Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? God is the one that that laid the foundations. God is the one that put all the layers of the rocks in place. It, it, It wasn't time. It wasn't billions of years. It was God. He was the one that placed them. It's not foundation. It's foundations. Layers of rocks. Layers of rocks. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. The Bible repeats this over and over and over again. Proverbs 8 and verse number 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth nor the, du- nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth. He didn't just make them, he appointed them. He put them right where he wanted them to be. And he put in them exactly what he wanted to, be, to put in them. God knows everything. And he did it all according to his design. All according to his design. Lastly, turn to Psalm chapter 104. Psalms 104, verse number 1. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever." Thou coverest it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. It's, it's all throughout Scripture. It's all throughout Scripture. And science proves it. Science proves it. I'm, I'm going to go through and show all the flaws with the dating methods. There's, there's tons of flaws. They're all over the place. And they'll admit that to you. <clears throat> but with this, man, all you have to do is believe this. Amen. And everything else lines up. So now we look at probably the biggest question when it comes to the layers of the earth. Did the flood create all the rocks on the earth or all the layers on the earth? Well, what did we just read? According to the Bible, God created the foundations of the earth. God created the layers. Not the flood. God did. Now, I believe that the flood had a large part to do with it. And a lot, a lot of the fossils that we see are there because of the flood. But we're going to look into this, all right? So Noah's flood. Let's look at Genesis chapter 7. Let's first look at some interesting facts about the flood. And then we'll, we'll dive into the results of the flood. So Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7, and uh, we'll start in verse number 7. First of all, we see that Noah's flood, it covered the whole earth with water. It was not just a local flood, it was a global flood. And many scientists believe it was a local flood. Now, let me explain to you what most people believe happened, what most evolutionists believe what happened. Between the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean, we have what's called today the Rock of Gibraltar. Everybody hear about the, the Rock of Gibraltar? Yeah. Right. Well, when standing on the Rock of Gibraltar in Spain or Portugal, you can look down and you can see Africa. It's that close. So what many scientists believe was the Mediterranean Sea was not there before. It was a ginormous valley. And there was a rock that stretched from, that, that connected the two continents of Europe and Africa. And there was a natural dam. And the dam broke loose and the entire Atlantic Ocean flooded into the, into the Mediterranean Sea. And in so doing, it would flood past the, the Mediterranean Sea. It would into Israel, into Iraq, into the Middle East, and it would flood everything there. And then it eventually would seep and drain back down to, into the Mediterranean Sea Valley now. That's what many, many evolutionists believe what happened. But I'm going to prove to you why it couldn't be. It couldn't be. <clears throat> Let's look at Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 7. Genesis 7, 7. And Noah went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and of fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark, the male and female as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Let's skip down to verse number 17. <clears throat> and the flood was 40 days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. All the mountains were covered. All the hills were covered. This was a global flood, a global flood. And every area of land on this earth was covered with water. It was covered with water. 
Now, secondly, we see it killed any living being that was not on the ark. Now, that's a lot of living beings that were killed. Genesis chapter 7, verse number 23 says, And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, that, and they that were with him in the ark. Everything was killed on the earth. But notice this, plant life was not destroyed. Plant life was not destroyed. This is pretty fascinating. Genesis chapter 8, verse number 10. Genesis 8, uh, verse number 10 says that, And he stayed yet other seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. I find it fascinating. The Bible says plucked off. So she didn't just find a leaf floating in the water. She actually plucked it off of a branch. That's pretty fascinating. That's, and, and the Lord put the right words in there. <laughs> the right words in there. It was plucked off. So in other words, there had to be an olive tree that was blooming, that was producing, that was alive, in order for this dove to pick off a leaf and bring it to Noah. Okay, so the plant life was not destroyed. Lastly, we see the flood lasted a long time. It lasted a long time. So it rained. We know that during the flood, it rained 40 days and 40 nights, but it actually lasted a lot longer than that. Let's look at Genesis chapter 7, verse number 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So we see here, according to our calendar, when Noah was 600 years old, on February 17th of that year, the, the rain started to come. February 17th. If you look down in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse number 3, the Bible says, And the waters returned from off the earth continually, after, and after the end of the 150 days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. That's exactly five months later. Exactly, it would be July 17th. From February 17th to July 17th, the flood landed on the mountains of Arab. Let's keep reading, though. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. So now, three months later, we can finally see the tops of the mountains. Oh, there's land. Let's look down in uh, verse number 13. And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seven and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. So it took about one year and ten days from it to start raining till the entire earth was dried. And theoretically, that would be about how long it would take for the entire earth to dry out. Science matches it. Science matches it. That's how long the flood lasted. It was a humongous flood. I mean, it was crazy big. I would highly recommend, if you have any doubts with the flood or the ark or how it was built, go down to the Creation Museum. They're building a life-scale model of the ark right now. And it's supposed to be done later this year. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating what they're doing down there. <clears throat> but essentially, this is Noah's flood. So with the flood, we would see there would be certain results. There would be certain results. And we're going to see that science proves this. So the results of a worldwide flood. First of all, we would have, we would have massive fossilized burial grounds. <clears throat> In other words, we would have places throughout the earth where there, there would just be fossilized skeletons of any animal and every animal. And we find that everywhere. 
There, there, there's, there's burial grounds in, in Europe, in Canada, in Australia, in Asia, in Africa, and almost every single continent we find burial grounds where there are fossilized remains of whales, dolphins, of dogs, of elephants, of, of gazelles, of deer, of bear, all buried together. Now, how would you have oceanic animals and land animals buried at the same exact spot? And most of those are above sea level. Man, that's interesting. And how would they, if it was just a local flood, how would they end up in Canada? Huh, that's another good question. It's another good question. We find these all around the world, all around the world. Secondly, there would be rapid deposition of thick proportions. So if we go back to this slide here, the red wall limestone, the Supai group, these, these layers of rocks are hundreds of, of feet thick. And, and typically, <clears throat> if you look at, say, a river, when a river deposits, I mean, it, there's no way it can deposit that big and that large amount of sediment in, in that short of time. There's, there's no way. But a flood can do it. A flood can do it. Rivers and, and normal daily routine will not create layers of rocks that thick, but floods can. You, you, would, also have, you would also have layered beds, so according to the density and the mass of the rock. So you would actually have the, the difference between the sandstone and the shale. There would be that fine line there. You'd have a difference between the limestone and the shale because they all they clump together. They clump together. <clears throat> That's just how rocks form. If you... A lot of this, we can look to the, uh, the explosion of Mount St. Helens. And at the base of Mount St. Helens, there was a lake on the north side of the mountain. And when Mount St. Helens erupted, the north side of the mountain just blew off. It just blew off, and it all landed on that lake. And it created a tsunami that wiped out that ent entire forest down there. And so we can look at that lake, and at a smaller scale, it created a local flood in that area, and, and we can compare that to how a global flood would, would destroy the Earth's surface. It would just be of epic proportions, epic pr proportions. We look at the smallest and lightest fossils would be buried on top, and that's typically what we see today. <clears throat> typically, the, you know, you have the marine fossils on top, which are going to be your shellfish, your crustaceans, your small fish, and the bigger fossils are going to be on the bottom. And that's the majority of the time that's how it is. Occasionally you have rocks overturned, and it's going to be the opposite way around. But most of the time, that's how it is. Now, <clears throat> when, I, when I talk about the, the vegetation and how that would last, islands of vegetation would flock together. When, when Mount St. Helens erupted back in the 80s, there was a whole forest down there, and, and it just came clean off. It was wiped out by that flood. So scientists watched that closely because evolutionists were like, ha-ha, we're going to show you creationist people that it's going to take years and years and years for this vegetation to grow back. And it only took about one or two years. <laughs> and it started to come back. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. So the vegetation would be fine. It would be fine. <clears throat> it comes right back. Secondly, they also noticed this. That, that whole lake, it moved down the mountainside. And all those trees that it took out with it, they all were floating on top of the lake. And they all started to clump together. And all those logs, they clumped together, and they became waterlogged. You ever go out in the ocean or go out you know, on the beach, and you see just logs floating in the water, and they're big and wet, and they're heavy? Well, when you have a bunch of trees that are in water like that, they clump together. And you can go online, and you can Google image search uh, clumps of vegetation in the ocean. And there's big lumps of trees and, and big bushes of vegetation that are clumped together in the ocean. And what they noticed on, on Mount St. Highlands, they had the same thing. Once it got too heavy, it sunk to the bottom. And, 
a few years later, at the bottom of that lake, they went down, and there's coal. It created coal in a matter of years, in a matter of years, whereas scientists believe that coal took millions of years to form, <laughs> took millions of years to form. Well, we have coal sitting on the bottom of that lake at Mount St. Helens, and it formed in a matter of two or three years. That's fascinating. That's fat. You never hear that, though. You never hear that. <clears throat> it's, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? So those are some results of a worldwide flood. Now, <clears throat> I know there, there's a lot of questions about the flood. Like, why wouldn't all the fish die? Well, when you have a flood and you mix the salt water and the fresh water, there's going to be what's called a line, line of salinity. So when a river comes into an ocean, you can always see that, that line. It's a clear line because, because there's a change in density. And so on one side, side of the line is fresh water, on one side of the line is salt water. And it always happens salt water is heavier than, than fresh water. So whenever the, the river goes out into the ocean, the line is going to be down here. Fresh water will be on top, salt water will be on the bottom. That's, that's pretty fascinating. Because now all the fish in the world, they can survive. Because they would, they would float up to where they need salt water or fresh water. That's how the fish would survive. That's how they would all survive. So going on now, I'm going to show the problems with both theories. The problems with both theories. First of all, dating methods are inaccurate. <clears throat> they're inaccurate. And there are a number of complex scientific ways to show this. But the most important one is this. In order to use radiometric dating, the environment in which the rocks are tested must be the same as when the rocks were deposited. Otherwise, this causes very inaccurate dating results. In other words, when that mineral formed, when that mineral formed, the Earth's atmosphere must be exactly the same as it is today if we're going to date it. Otherwise, we're going to get totally skewed results. It'll be totally different. Now, I truly believe that the Earth's atmosphere has changed a number of times, including when we had the flood. When the, when the global flood came through, that would dramatically and drastically change in Earth's atmosphere. It would. You have that much water on land or you know, covering the Earth, it's going to change the atmosphere. But <clears throat> if you go back, even scientists themselves will say that you know, 50 million years ago, the, the environment of the Earth and the Earth's atmosphere was completely different than it is today. They just, they just told themselves that they were wrong because you can't accurately date uh, uh, igneous rocks if the environment in which they were formed is different from the environment in which they were tested. It's going to be totally wrong every single time. Every single time. That's the most important one. Carbon-14 dating cannot date accurately past 50,000 years ago. So how can you date something that's 340 million years old with something that only goes back 50,000 years mathematically? It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. And like I said before, there are missing layers of the geologic time scale all over the world. All over the world. Those disconformities that we found in just the Grand Canyon alone, there's a few of them here. You've got, you've got one here. You've got one down here. You've got another one here. They're, they're, all, they're all over the place. And we don't know where those rocks went. And that's, that's our explanation of saying, uh, of, of excusing why we're allowed to have so much time. Because, well, we can give or take, you know, 25 million years here because we think that there was a rock here, but now it's gone. Well, you have no evidence to prove it whatsoever. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's how they explain that away. That's how they explain that away. So now we look at the problems with creation. 
and I clicked out of it. <clears throat> but it's the same two problems with every other area of science. There must be an almighty God, and there must be an almighty purpose. <clears throat> and if there's neither of those two things, then this theory is totally flawed and totally inaccurate. Because without a God, it's impossible. And without a purpose, it's impossible. It's impossible. <clears throat> there are so many... I'm going to close with this. <clears throat> when on the bottom of most oceans, we find a, an igneous rock called basalt. And basalt is one of the most prevalent igneous rocks in the world. <clears throat> but in basalt, you have certain minerals that form. Like I said, when magma cools, those minerals crystallize in seconds. And in basalt, <clears throat> it's spelled B-A-S-A-L-T. In basalt, you have minerals called hematite and, and magnetite. And those are the minerals that we use to make magnets. They have poles. They have north and south poles. And when you take bar mag magnets, right, you have a positive end and you have a negative end. And the two posit positive ends cannot... They cannot attract, but a positive and negative will attract, right? We all understand how mag magnets work. Well, those magnets are made from these minerals, hematite and magnetite. We find them in the surface of the earth. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. <clears throat> we also know this. On the surrounding our globe is what we call a, a magnetic sphere. And that magnetic sphere protects us from the harmful radiations of the sun. On the north... It's not directly above the north pole of our globe, but in the northern hemisphere, there's a north, northern magnetic pole. And in our, in our southern hemisphere, we have a southern magnetic pole as well. And so let's call the northern, the northern pole is going to be positive, and the southern pole is going to be negative. If you use it as a magnet, right, the top side is, is positive, the bottom side is negative. If you look at all, those, all of those hematite and magnetite crystals, when they crystallize, Every single one of them aligns with the poles in the earth. So, right, so on, on the north pole, it's positive. So as soon as that little hematite uh, uh, mineral crystallizes, its negative end is going to be towards the positive end in the earth, and its positive end of the crystal is going to be pointing down towards the negative end of the pole in the earth. Does that make sense? Just like any magnet you would use together. Huh, watch this. Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs 8.27 when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. What do you use to make a compass? Use magnets. Use magnets. Solomon wrote this before even going to the bottom of the ocean. He knew that we had a compass on the bottom of the ocean. There were minerals in the bottom of the ocean that pointed which way was north and which way was south. That fascinates me. That fascinates me. You talk about geology. We didn't discover this until about a few decades ago. And this was, that was written probably 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. That's fascinating. There are places like that all in Scripture that we are just discovering today, that we're just discovering today. That's how amazing our God is. He knows every single mineral that was crystallized. He knows every single human being that is on the face of this planet. I would highly suggest, if you never have had the ability to do so, go to one of our national parks that has amazing rock formations and just stand in awe at our Creator. That's right. That's right. Just stand in awe of what He has done. And then realize how little we are, how small I am, and how much He would still love me 
and how much he chose to give his life for me, it'll blow you away every single time. It'll blow you away every single time. <clears throat> All right, that's it for tonight. Anybody have any questions about the presentation? Uh, my one buddy at work was telling me that there's a deepest part of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And there's